Tēnā koutou no mai, hai to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tang. This morning, as early voting begins, an exclusive poll in the critical Auckland Central electorate. Our Colmar Brunton numbers show a tightening race. The candidates are with us live. Then, which major party is best positioned to grow our economy? Nationals Paul Goldsmith and Labor's Grant Robertson with their plans for debt, tax and housing. We're going to need to have some pretty hard debates in regard to the appropriateness of tax rates, whether they're set right, how much spending can we get away with, what's our appetite for austerity, or are we prepared to put some sacred cows on the table? But before we get to domestic issues this morning, we're going to begin with a quick update on the extraordinary developments out of Washington, D.C. over the last day. This morning, the White House says President Donald Trump is doing well as he's treated for COVID-19. But that conflicts with reports the president needed supplemental oxygen before being taken to Walter Reed Medical Center. Just 72 hours into the diagnosis now, the first week of COVID, and in particular days 7 to 10, are the most critical in determining the likely course of this illness. At this time, the team and I are extremely happy with the progress the president has made. Thursday, he had a mild cough and some nasal congestion and fatigue, all of which are now resolving and improving. That being said, the president's chief of staff says the president went through a very concerning period before being flown to hospital. To make sense of it all for us, One News US correspondent Anna Burns-Francis is in Washington, D.C. Anna, there are confusing messages as to the state of the president's health. What more can you tell us? That's right, Jack. It was a very optimistic message from the doctors outside Walter Reed this morning, but almost immediately we saw the Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, ask the pool cameras to turn them off for a moment, and someone from the White House gave that other update, which was quite conflicting, that, as you said, the past 24 hours have been very concerning and that the next 48 would be crucial to determining the President's path through his treatment of coronavirus. We've also seen more details leaked about when he required that supplementary oxygen, that was said to be at the White House on Friday, hence the doctors saying that he hadn't received any at hospital. But they declined to give any further information about his vital signs. We're really seeing a lot of mixed messaging here, and that's a cause for concern not only for the mm. wider public, but also of what's happening within the White House and how prepared they are to deal with whatever's going to unfold in a situation that's obviously rapidly changing. If you want any sign of quite uh, what might be happening behind closed doors, President Donald Trump is usually a voracious tweeter, but. Uh, you might have noticed he went quiet for about 14 hours yesterday. So maybe that's a clue as to how things were going. And there are reports that an event in the White House Rose Garden to celebrate the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court of the United States might have been to blame for spreading COVID-19. What does that mean for her nomination process? Yes, well, that was a large outdoor event attended by a number of Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee and, of course, White House aides as well. Now, that was always going to be, after her nomination, a very tight vote to get that across the floor. Uh, they could only Republicans could only afford to lose three votes on that, and we've already seen two Republican senators who attended that ceremony, Tom Tillis and Mike Lee, say that they have now tested positive for coronavirus. They also say they're four days into a quarantine period, so there's 10 days 
ways to go. They might make it out in time, but it does throw those Senate judiciary hearings into question. Uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said he wants to delay any Senate hearings for two weeks, but he's happy to hold the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings virtually, of course. Democrats not too happy about this, but there is precedent for holding those virtually, and there may still be time to put Amy Coney Barrett into the seat, although, of course, Mitch McConnell still hasn't confirmed when a vote might be. Okay, Anna. It is the 3rd of October in the US, which means we are exactly a month from polling day. What does this diagnosis mean for the campaign? Well, it's thrown everything into question, really. Uh, at the moment, the Trump campaign says his future events have been postponed, but there's no word from the debate commission as to what will happen with those two remaining presidential debates. We know there's a vice presidential debate next week. That's going ahead as planned, although there is word that there may be some more distancing or a slight change in the way it's held and whether there's an audience or not to account for the latest developments. Uh, and then as to the next debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, well, that was due to be held in less than two weeks' time. So whether Donald Trump's well enough to attend and then whether it would still be held in that town hall format is yet to be decided. For the meantime, uh, the Biden campaign has dropped its attack ads, although the Trump campaign hasn't offered the same courtesy. We've also, also seen Vice President Mike Pence. He's to hold the next outdoor rally that Donald Trump was supposed to go to. That's in Arizona coming up on Thursday. Kia ora ehoa. Thank you so much and stay safe. That is the One News US correspondent Anna Burns-Francis live for us in Washington, D.C. All right, back to New Zealand now and the contest to win the Auckland Central electorate. New numbers show the race is tightening with just nine percentage points separating the leading candidate from the candidate in third place. Here are the results from an exclusive Colmar Brunton poll of voters in central Auckland. Candidates are in the same order as in previous polls, but this poll shows the race is closer. Labour's Helen White leads the pack with 35% support, while Emma Mallow, who of course replaced Nikki Kay as Nationals Auckland Central candidate, is on 30 percentage points. And in third place, the Greens' Chloe Swarbrick with 26%. Now let's have a look at the party vote. Labour is on 47, National is on 28, the Greens have 13% support from within the electorate and ACT is on 6. Now some detail on the poll. It was taken of 502 voters between the 24th and the 30th of September and split evenly between landlines and online responses. 9% of respondents were undecided or didn't wish to answer the electorate support questions. There's a margin of error of about 4.4%. Helen White, Emma Mallow and Chloe Swarbrick are with us this morning. Wahine ma, tēnā koutou. Welcome morning. to Q&A. Good morning. Helen, I'll begin with you. 35% but you're just five percentage points ahead of Emma Mallow, according to this latest poll. Does Chloe Swarbrick need to pull back so you can win? I would love her to, but I doubt she's going to. I've <laughs> always said that it's really important we don't split the vote on the left. I've never been complacent about this, and I don't want people to get confused. It's a really important race for, for, for Labour and for this city. I'd really like to be the voice that is going to government and asking for things, and I'd like to do so from the perspective I have, which is very left leaning. Um, I think it's going to be really good for the city if we can have somebody do that job and I'd hate to take any chances by splitting that vote. How serious is that risk that you'll split the vote at this stage? I am not complacent about that. I've been really clear. Um, it's, it's, you know, was a Labour seat for a very long time and it's a really important connector. It's um, a very important city for Labour to hear from and to hear from on the ground. And as we go round and we talk to people, it's really evident that they haven't had a representative um, here 
from the Labor Party, hearing those stories just as closely as I can and advocating for them. And I really want to do that job and I think it couldn't be a more important time. All right, Chloe Swarbrick, how serious is the risk that this, the vote is being split on the left? Well, I think that perhaps there is a little bit of underestimation of the independent thinking that people in Auckland Central actually have here. Nobody is entitled to this electorate and it is Auckland Central voters who will decide who represents them in Auckland Central. I think as well that they have shown in the past and I hope will continue to show that they value hard work, independent thinking and boots on the ground and over the past three years despite being a list MP for the Greens I have very much had my boots on the ground uh, and my ear to the ground as well and working to help and support folks across Auckland Central. What are you going to say in two weeks time if we are sitting here you've got 32% support in Auckland Central, Helen's got 32% in Auckland Central and Emma's sitting here grinning with 34%. Uh, what I would say is that this is up to the voters of Auckland Central, and it always has been. And actually, Jack, on that point as well, for five elections, the Greens ran party vote-only campaigns, mm. yet we're constantly still blamed for arguably splitting the vote. But strategy so comes into MMP, right? Strategy massively does. And I think here it's really important for folks to realise that any party that gets over 5%, this seat will not change the balance of power in Parliament. What this comes down to is the kind of representation that people want in that House of Representatives. And I think that it's really meaningful that they have a representative who says the same thing on the ground as they will in the halls of power. And I've shown that I have the propensity to do just that. Emma, you have got a chance. Nikki Kay in 2017 got 45%. Why do you think at this stage you are not resonating in that way? Well, I'm working incredibly hard on the ground. I'm very encouraged by this poll. It's seen an improvement since the last public poll uh, in Auckland Central. Uh, the people of Auckland Central need a person with corporate and business experience that will be um, a great advocate for the small businesses in Parliament because we're facing the biggest economic crisis in a century. Uh, we know that businesses create jobs, not the government, and they need a voice in Parliament. But we Do also need to look after workers, to be perfectly honest with we need you. To look after, we need a representative who works for all the interests, and Nikki did exactly that. She worked incredibly hard over 12 years and I'll do exactly the same. Do you think there's a risk these two are going to split the vote? Ultimately it comes down to the people of Auckland Central. Yeah, but what they do you will think? choose. They will choose the best person to represent them. Mm. I'm working incredibly hard every day and my support is gaining and I'm, I'm encouraged by that. But ultimately it will come up to them. I don't think any big party is going to be able to tell people in Auckland Central what to do here. So the best strategy is oh, actually for people to back their favourite. Chloe, Candidate. nobody is telling anybody to vote anyway. No one is entitled and everyone works hard. Great. What we need in this city at the moment is that connector. Mm -hmm. And there is a connector to central government. And it couldn't be a more critical time. That, that comes from a perspective we both share, that we care about this community growing in a very different way from the National Party. Mm. And I want to do that. And I have 27 years as an employment lawyer. I actually can okay. connect clearly with small business. Let me ask this, I'm going to ask each of you this and then we'll wrap up. We are two weeks or less than two weeks now from polling day, of course voting has already, has already begun. What do you think will decide this race? Helen. I think that the polls are a really encouraging sign. I hope that as people get to know me that they understand that I can do that job, particularly as a constituency MP. It's a, it's a, it is a constituency role. We need to listen to people, we need to actually do hard work and we're, we're probably all capable of that but I am certainly capable of that and I will work very hard if I get it.
Emma. It's who's running the best ground game. I'm out every day from the very start of the day to the end of the day talking to people. I've called over 2,000 households since I was selected. I've met hundreds of businesses. They're worried about the future. They want someone who will take their, their concerns seriously and be a voice for them in Parliament. Chloe. I think that this does come down to connecting with the people and showing them that it isn't just about holding power but it's also about building that community and over the past few weeks and months despite having to deal with a second lockdown uh, we have been doing our utmost to get there get out there and to talk to folks there's only one left-wing candidate who lives in Auckland Central uh, and I will do my utmost to represent my home Thank you very much for your time and pitches this morning. Good luck for the next two weeks. Helen White, Emma Mallow and Chloe Swarbrick. Our panellists will be here later in the programme with their thoughts on the poll. But next, which major party has the best plan to rebuild and grow our economy? Nationals Paul Goldsmith and Labor's Grant Robertson are with us live. Welcome back to Q&A. COVID-19 has upended this election and thrown the global economy into turmoil. Labour and National agree we need to borrow billions of dollars in response to COVID-19, with New Zealand's debt forecast to hit 55% of GDP by 2024. So, which major party is best placed to drive sustainable growth and rebuild our economy? Labour's economic spokesperson Grant Robertson and Nationals Paul Goldsmith. Tēnā kōrua, welcome to Q&A. Grant, I'll begin with you. We are in massive debt. We have whole sectors of our economy shut. Why should voters trust Labour to rebuild our economy? Well, we have got through COVID-19 with a strong and steady plan, and that part of that is the recovery and the rebuild. That's why we've invested you know, more than $1.5 billion in skills and training. It's why we've lifted our spending on research and development. Uh, we've got a plan to get us through this, but we also have to recognise COVID's not done either. So we've got to do both things at once. We've kept that money on the table, $12 billion, to be able to support us through in the event that there is a resurgence and at the same time be investing in improving our productivity, building back better. And I think, you know, we've shown a track record of being careful with money over the last couple of years, but also investing in what's needed. You've also shown a track record of having issues around delivery. And in the eyes of many voters, they will say it's well and good to have a plan, but if you look at the likes of KiwiBuild, the promises that were made around light rail, Labor hasn't delivered on some of its biggest promises from the last election. Why is this time any different? Because we have actually delivered for example, in the housing area, which I know we're going to come back to, um, nearly 4,000 public houses. But you're big, I mean, you know, time. we don't need to get into Kiwi Bill, but you know what you promised and you know what you delivered on that Yeah, and, and we were able to face up to that, reorientate it, and now it's part of our progressive home ownership plan. It's underwriting developments right around the country. But we've proved during COVID that we can deliver. We got alongside our households and our businesses and made sure that people stayed in their jobs, and now we have an opportunity to rebuild from that. Paul Goldsmith, why should voters trust National to rebuild our economy? Well, uh, this government's shown that they can spend, uh, but they can't build and grow. And uh, we've got to have a focus on how we get out of this uh, situation. And that'll rely uh, partly on short-term stimulus. That's why we're going to have a tax cut from the 1st of December to put some more money into the hands of New Zealanders and get the economy ticking over. And then it's about uh, trusting and encouraging and enabling uh, the private sector uh, growth machine to get going again. Uh, and it's about keeping taxes low, it's about pushing back the tide of regulation uh, and not just continually adding costs to businesses, which is what this government is doing. 
and, and having a, uh, an ambitious infrastructure plan as well. And so, you know, we want to, you know, in this region, connect the two and a half million people between Whangarei, Hamilton and Tauranga. Get started on that and get the, those infrastructure projects underway that will really improve our productivity. All right. If delivery is the question for Labor, credibility is the, de is the question for you, isn't it? You, you have chopped and changed on your debt target and tax plans over the last few months. You did your sums wrong when it, when it came to your economic plan. Why should voters believe you have the credibility to be the next finance minister? Well, the National Party has been uh, very strong on the economy for a long time now. We got through the, the global financial crisis and the Canterbury earthquakes in great shape. We left this government massive surpluses. You're, which they the, squandered man, in two you're the man in charge of the books. Yeah, why, should, gotta, why should we trust you as finance minister? Because uh, we have a clear, uh, well-organised plan to grow <laughs> the economy. And uh, yeah, none of those Grant, people Grant can spend, but he can't build. <laughs> none of those people who... It is a different team. It's, yeah, a, it's, it's a totally different team. Course. Of course, and we've got a new generation and we're focused... Judith so why Collins. should we trust that generation? Well, because you build on the record that you've got and you have a clear plan. What we've got from them is a fiscal <laughs> pamphlet. Uh, from us, we've got a plan that combines... <laughs> I'm sure the pre-food's a fiscal pamphlet. Short-term stimulus, continuing to invest in public services and a path but, back but to reasonable Jack, that, But on that, that is actually the problem because Paul's got himself in a, in a fiscal Bermuda triangle here. Oh, he taxes. wants to cut taxes, he wants to increase spending and he wants to dramatically speed up the repayment of debt. You actually can't do all of those things credibly. Well, you can if you're skillful. And that's what you need to <laughs> no, it only works if you cut. That's okay. the way it works. Okay, I'm going to ask you both the same question here because you do actually agree on, on, on a lot of things. You both agree the solution is to grow the economy. You both believe uh, that we have to get debt under control. Grant Robertson, what is the one policy that Labor has that will make the biggest difference in restoring our economy? I do think it's our investment in skills and training. We have had a massive skills deficit in New Zealand for a long time. And we know, even since July, when we brought the free apprenticeships in, we know that there are now nearly 5,000 more building apprentices since July compared to about 1,500. Now, that's a practical, immediate thing we can do. It builds on the whole point of creating jobs and keeping people mm. in jobs. Paul Goldsmith. And for us, it's... it's it's a, it's a generation of jobs. Uh, this is, uh, the Labor people think that the government goes out, buys jobs, you, mm. you shoot possums, you hunt, you know, plant flax bushes. Uh, we trust the private sector to invest. Uh, and our depreciation changes, which are all about encouraging businesses to invest and grow and take on that extra person. It's the tens of thousands of businesses, large and small, taking on that extra mm. person that gives you right. the chance to have a job and that gets the economy to Yeah, I think we all agree that, 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 that private business plays a big role in, in creating jobs in New Zealand. Grant, small businesses have complained about compliance costs under your government, that over the last three years uh, compliance costs have significantly increased. Now you're committed to doubling sick leave, we're going to have another public holiday and a minimum wage increase. Are you listening to small business? Absolutely. The Small Business Advisory Council that we've had have, have developed a programme of regulation change that they're interested in that we're now following through on. But we've also listened to them around things like the Small Business Cash Flow Loan Scheme, uh, the fact that we're going to regulate merchant fees. Uh, we're now offering a digital training voucher which comes exactly as a result of small businesses telling us that they want to go online. But let's look at that minimum wage increase because it's those people on the minimum wage who spend their money in the economy and, and push along the profitability of small businesses. Yeah. So $44 a week in the pocket of, a, of someone on the minimum wage compared to eight bucks in Paul's plan will make a really big difference in money flowing through the economy. Yeah, but there's no magic there. I, I mean, I was talking to a 
uh, a restaurant owner in Parnell, she was at her wit's end. She was saying, how on earth am I going to pay for an extra week of sick leave? Where the, where's the money coming from? Is the government going to pay? No, they're not going to pay. How am I going to pay these extra minimum wages? Uh, there's, it's got to be based on productivity and the actual ability of businesses to do, pay. Do you agree, though, on the principle of stimulus, do you agree that people with less money are more likely to spend a bit of extra yes, cash? Yes, but, but you can't... Hang on, you do. Pardon? That you do. Well, look, there's lots of no, ways... No, 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 that's my question. Ways, you know, there are many ways to stimulate an economy. Okay. You, you can have shovel-ready projects, you can have tax relief. Mm. Uh, who is more likely to spend money? Someone who doesn't have much money or someone who does? Everybody can spend money, and we're focused on those From average income earners that are working hard, and we want to give them some tax relief. Uh, you can do it all sorts of ways. But you know what? The, the average the income point... earner, or the, the median income earner, which is a much better statistic, isn't getting anywhere near the amount of money that people around uh, $80,000 We're going to do tax in a few minutes. I want to focus on jobs creation a little longer yep. here. Paul, women have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19 job losses in the June quarter. Out of 11,000 job losses, 10,000 were jobs held by women in New yep. Zealand. What are you doing to create high-value jobs for women? Well, uh, you've you got to do is create jobs generally. And uh, when you're losing jobs... But, uh, but we're not losing, losing jobs, jobs generally, are we? Well, we have. We've lost 70,000 jobs since March. But of those uh, 11,000... the Treasury says we're going to lose another 100,000 jobs, so we need to create the jobs. And it comes back to those businesses feeling confident to take on the extra person. When Grant just keeps on piling on costs, it makes it more difficult. Uh, and you've got this naive sort of view of the world that somehow you just tell businesses to pay people more and, and magically it happens. Well, you can't just tell the customers in Beijing and New York to pay more for our stuff. Just be clear with you've me, though, be, and I'll ask, I'll ask Grant Robertson this as well. Do you have any policy that specifically focuses on, on industries or sectors that are more likely to create jobs for women? No, what we, what we focus on is creating jobs for anybody, whether they're Ma woman, Maori, Pākehā, Pacific Islanders, doesn't matter. You create jobs okay. and then that fills all those but, but the problem is we're losing jobs disproportionately. Of those 11,000 job losses in the June quarter, 10,000 were felt by women. Grant Robertson, what are you doing to create jobs for women? So within that trade training um, and subsidised training and free apprenticeships, we have construction and manufacturing, which we want more women in. But in addition, we also have mental health care, aged care, community care. Part of our flexi-wage programme, which is where employers are subsidised to take people on, we're actually ring-fencing part of that for people to start their own businesses, and the research shows that women, particularly coming out of some of those industries like retail and hospitality, want to do that as well. So it has to be broad-based, but there are targeted initiatives we can take. OK, quick question for both of you before we go uh, to the air break. A second Auckland Harbour crossing, give me your best pitch, whether it's cars, whether it's mass transit, rail, Paul Goldsmith, well, who's going to get it done It's faster? already part of our plan uh, and uh, we were looking to start by 2028 uh, and it's going to be rail and uh, road and it's essential. It's all part of our broader uh, economic plan. The design work on it's already underway. People are already doing the work to tell us what the mix should be. Clearly it needs, in my opinion, to have a public transport lens as well as, as road. But the reality is all their focus is on the slow tram down to Mill Road. No, it's road. not, Paul. Uh, it's a, it's a balanced transport plan. Uh, it's filled to Eiffel's It's obsession. a bit more to transport uh, than roads, Paul. All right, OK, we'll hold it there for a moment and be back in just a couple of minutes. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us, q&a at tvnz.co.nz. After the break, we will continue the debate, but first we want to share the economic concerns and priorities for a range of New Zealanders. I'm a fourth year law and arts student. The things I'd like the government to acknowledge, given the plight of COVID, is that we are the generation of uncertainty. I have friends and colleagues that are unsure what their future holds. So then, are the major parties doing enough to ease the generational burden of COVID-19?
the broad strategy of borrowing big to support the economy has been the right policy response in the near term. But, but that means we've got you know, some real fiscal challenges down the track because we've loaded up the balance sheet with debt. And that is going to involve some, some real tough decisions. That's economist Cameron Bagri. He says we need to have some hard conversations. And you heard a student there before the break concerned about the generational burden from COVID-19. So then, let's talk about tax. Grant Robertson, neither of you are looking to significantly broaden the tax base. Why not? I, we're prioritising stability at the moment, Jack. I mean, we are still in the midst of COVID-19, and I think a major shake-up of our tax system right now just isn't the right so plan in right terms time? of providing certainty. Well, that will come, and, and we can no, look this, in the this, future. This, this, to, this, no, 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 let yeah. me finish. We can look towards that in the future, but I have a job to do as Minister of Finance mm -hmm. to help guide New Zealand through a one-in-100-year economic event. We want to make sure that we're building back strongly, addressing some of the long-term mm -hmm. issues we've got, but we have to balance that against the fact that our tax system is simple, it's easy to understand. We are increasing mm -hmm. the amount that the top 2% of earners have to pay. That helps us balance our so budget. So when, when should we have those tough conversations? Well, we, we always have them. They're ongoing conversations, So, so when, when would you look at broadening the tax base? I mean, if, if, if we're looking at 55% GDP, um, GDP debt by 2024, at what point do we, do we start saying, OK, we might actually need to reconsider the shape of New Zealand's tax system? And we've been very clear it won't be in this term because this term is the term where we need to consolidate and get ourselves through this. Now, we are doing what we need to do with the tax system to pay for what's in front of us right now. We've also got a crackdown further on multinationals, which I think is hugely important for New Zealand as well. But for now, stability and delivering on our plan is the most important Can thing. Can you rule it out in the future? I know, you've, I know you've said in this term that you're not looking to, to, to add any more taxes that you haven't already described in your manifesto. But in the future, does New Zealand need to broaden its tax base? We'll make those commitments as we do at each election, and there'll be people. But you're the guy with the exactly, eyes on the horizon. We so will, you must, you must, we will, you, you we have will forecast seek, going through to the will, We will seek a mandate for anything that we want to do in the future. I'm focused on the next three years, which are going to be critical for New Zealand. Why do we need a mandate? Why do you need a mandate? Uh, no, <laughs> it's no, called no, no, democracy, no, Jack. No, 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 no. But aside from, I mean, uh, you, you win an election, there's your mandate, right? So, so, uh, I mean, if you, if you ask, if you ask the public, the vast majority of the time, of course, they want to be paying less tax. If it were up to half of New Zealanders, they'd be paying no tax mm. whatsoever. But the, the fact of the matter is, we have vast debt that many young New Zealanders yeah. are going to be paying off for a long but time. But so what, what, what we've got so scared of this? Because what we must do is be able to sustainably grow our economy to be able to mm. reduce that debt. The tax system will always be a part mm. of what we need to deal with. But the most important thing, in terms of creating jobs, in terms of being able to reduce that debt down, is having an economy that's sustainable, that's more productive than it's been in the past. That has to be the focus. Paul Goldsmith, why shouldn't we be broadening the tax base? Well, because we believe we don't need extra taxes. Uh, we got through uh, a period of big borrowing uh, to get through the global financial mm. crisis without increasing taxes. And we focused on growth uh, and careful spending. And that combination can get us there again. And so our plan has us back to 35% GDP uh, debt, or 36% uh, within uh, 15 Your years. Your plan means some seriously austere times no, it ahead. Doesn't. It, it doesn't. Does. No, it's it not. Does. Okay, what, what happens to, to spending in health and education so over the next five We allow years? for an extra $1.8 billion of spending every year. 
and uh, there is plenty of opportunity to continue but to invest. There's only 800 million left next yep. year, Paul, after your new commitments. That's right. We've spent an average of $767 billion So if, if the measure, if the measure the is, do we system. spend as much as labour? No. No. Because, okay. uh, you know we, what, everybody knows but, that they but, waste but money. What, did, no, what did our hospitals and our schools look like, yep. Paul, when you had austerity before? And so we before. won't be spending $3,000 a week no. on, on poor no, quality a, houses because we can't organise I mean, you, you are cutting taxes, and I note that according to the One News Conway Brunton poll this week, a majority of New Zealanders do not think that now is the time for a tax cut. But, but what a very to different talk to me more about if that. you ask about a temporary tax stimulus to get the economy going. Potatoes. On the 1st of December, uh, okay, New Zealanders okay. will get extra money in but their pockets. $800 million in additional spending sure, next That's year. health, that's no, no, education, that's the police. All of that has to be covered can, by that. Look, you can sledge. One I'm not sledging, I'm just giving you your own numbers. You've got $1.8 billion of extra You've spent a billion of it. And some of it's already been spent on pharmac and various health areas and we've got extra resources available and the first budget of course will go through and we'll find all the wasteful spending that he hasn't <laughs> allocated and there'll be plenty of opportunities you, to continue. Anyone to can, can go on a spending splurge if you don't pay the well, bills shunned, and these guys are not going to be able to pay the basic awesome. bills okay. of Bean and Government. It doesn't add up Paul. There are three elephants in the fiscal room I want to, I want to tick off this morning. One is tax, another is housing. Let's just have a quick listen to this. There's 290,000 private landlords in the country, and most of those, 90% of those, only actually own one other property. So they want to get their own house plus one other property. Um, they're not greedy like people say. All they're doing is trying to provide for themselves and their families and their retirement. Grant Robertson, do property investments have an advantage over other forms of investments? Oh, you know, property investment is obviously something New Zealanders have been interested in for a long time. Um, we've been encouraging people into other forms of investment by, for example, the, the work we've done to establish the Elevate Fund, which gets money into the hands of entrepreneurs and provides a basis for it others to invest in. Look, no. property investment at well, the moment is what New Zealanders choose to do with a lot of their but money. But that's because they're behaving rationally, isn't it? Well, it's partly that, but it's partly too because actually there's a security in property that people like. What we've actually seen, though, no, over over the last three years is actually the number of first home buyers, the percentage of first home buyers coming up and actually getting past property investors. So we have seen a return You've of first You've seen the Reserve Bank figures the, the last couple of months and, and the money that is being lent to property investors right now. I'm going back to that question. Do property investors have an advantage over other forms of investments? Oh, do you mean over other people in the property he market? He believes they do. They try no. to put in a capital gains tax and they no, it out. No, we didn't. Uh, and, what and we actually what did, what we actually did was extend the bright line test to five years, ring fence rental losses and make sure that foreign buyers can't get into the existing residential market. Look, there will be property investors in our market. That's absolutely true. But first home buyers are getting more of a fair go. My question was whether or not they have an advantage over other forms of investment. Paul, uh, my question for you, you want to reduce the bright line test from five years back to two years, why make it easier for property investors? Because we think that uh, it brings too little flexibility into what is an important part of our housing market. Now let's mean? just go, well, well, because two years is fine. If you're five years, it becomes very difficult to negotiate. Now what Hang we've on, seen... What, no, no, what do you mean by what? that? Well, we brought in the bright line test for two years, so yeah. that enables to stop people flicking things on. If yeah. you go to five years, it means it makes it more difficult for people to do normal to stuff when they... To flick well, no, no, when the changing, of the policy. Changing, leaving the country, doing something else with their money, uh, and we don't think that's well, necessary. Well, uh, but let's go back to the... Hang on, what's the question? difference? 
Well, the difference is between two years and five years. Yeah. What I want to focus on... The difference on. is easy making sure people don't flip. But why not, why not pay tax on their capital gain over five years? I mean, well, because we don't have a capital gains tax, and no, we don't I, need a capital gains you know tax. I mean, and I'm after two line. years, that's But is fine. the two-year a capital gains tax or not a capital gains Look, tax, then? I'm not answering questions to you. What I want to talk about... <laughs> is the two-year a capital gains tax or not a capital gains tax? Look, let's ask the basic question. No, 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 I'm the one asking the questions. Is the two-year a capital gains tax or not a capital gains tax? The bright light. Within two years, you pay tax on... On the capital gains. We're all exactly aware <laughs> yeah. of what the bright line yeah. is. So that means the two year is a, is a capital gains tax. For that purpose in housing. Ah, so right. ah, good. Anyway, look, <laughs> the point I want to make is that on housing policy, uh, that it was the focus three years ago, mm. and uh, they were going to fix it all, and the result has been that house prices have continued to go up and rents have gone up. I was in Gisborne yesterday, mm -hmm. massive problem with the affordability of rents. Uh, and uh, the main reason for that is that this government's gone to war on landlords like no, that lady here. And rubbish. they've brought in endless additional costs and uh, made it more difficult. And the problem is that it's not compulsory for people to rent out their houses. Mm. And if you make it too difficult, they will draw from the market. Uh, there's what a shortage of the supply. House? What happens to the house? Well, well that can be bought, but there's a shortage of supply for renters and the price has gone up. We have New Zealanders suffering from rheumatic fever at the moment. What is the problem with making sure that people have warm, dry houses to live in. The problem is that every little change on its own uh, might make sense, but if you do them all together at once, including going from two years to five years, in totality, it means that you end up with a shortage okay, of supply so and the price this. goes up. And that is a real driver of poverty. If okay. you're concerned about poverty, this is making it much, much more difficult that's, for that's New Zealand right. households. Grant, I'm going to you in a Can I just have one other Yeah, step? you can. Uh, these people inherited 5,000 people on, on the state house waiting list. It's now nearly 20,000. And that is a pure indication of, of the failure who need to housing. get houses uh, delivered. Judith, Judith, Collins, Judith Collins said in the News Hub debate the other night, she thinks that house prices should come down in some areas areas, where would those areas be? Well, prices do fluctuate. No, 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 but where should those areas be? She said specifically that house prices should come down in some areas. Where should those areas well, I'm be? I'm not going to name a particular region. Well, hang on, no, she said some areas. Why not? Yeah, well, because house prices go up dramatically, and, and during the GFC they came back 10 No, but she said, she said on national television, yeah. with hundreds of thousands of people are watching, that she thinks house prices should come down in some areas. You want to be finance minister, yeah. what are those areas? Well, I'm not going to say I'm going to identify a particular suburb or anything like that. What we need to do is focus on improving the supply of new houses and reducing the cost of new houses, and that's why, the why best would your leader say that if you're not going to identify them? Well, because there's, you, you're being silly. Uh, <laughs> all, all she's trying to make the point is that uh, prices fluctuate over time. Uh, they generally have been going up. But she said uh, very clearly that house prices should come down in some areas anyway. Yeah. So well, they might. what are those areas? Well, in areas where there's an oversupply. And as, as we saw in Christchurch, when you build lots of houses, you can take the okay. pressure off house prices. Grant Robertson, house prices, despite your promises to make houses more affordable over uh, your term in government, have gone up 27%. That's the median house price in New Zealand over the last three years. Would you ever introduce a policy that would bring house prices down? What we were looking for is sustained moderation in house prices. We, that means no. Well, it means a sustained moderation. It means not having the big spikes that we've seen. And the full suite of policies we've got will do that. It is actually partly about reforming the RMA and making it easier for, for New Zealanders so to be able to... for nine years. No, well, you didn't do it for nine years. I mean, we've look, actually got everyone a plan always there. says, we need to change the RMA, no-one's done it yet. Yeah, but in addition to that, it is about being an active participant, so through things like progressive home ownership, having an urban development authority that actually can work in partnership with local councils, with iwi and others, to build more yeah. houses. Um, all of those things 
things come together to be able to do it. But that. all of but those things take short, time. Exactly. What are we going to see over it's the next couple of years? Business. Already we are seeing you know, v property investors pouring into the market mm. and forecasts from, from some of the big banks that we're going to see a significant spike over the next couple of years. I know these things don't sound sexy, Jack, but the national policy statement on urban development is actually specifically about getting our cities to develop in a way that is both more sustainable mm. and provides more housing opportunities for people. But that kind of groundwork that we laid over the last three years, along with the Infrastructure Funding and Financing Act, all of the work that we're doing on the RMA, that is what will help us with our house building programme. Three years ago, they promised uh, to build 16,000 houses through KiwiBuild. Complete flop. The Prime Minister's ill-conceived intervention at Iwamato stopped more houses being built than they managed in the whole of the KiwiBuild. How many affordable houses in the nine years you were in? Well, what? State houses. affordable houses? No, not state houses. Affordable, affordable houses. houses. We were building houses. The very, country was building very houses few. Like All right, we're going to leave housing there. After the break... I'm Rachel Kersock from uh, the president of Carpety Grey Power and we're looking for the next government um, in terms of superannuation. If any changes are being made to the age at which people receive superannuation, plenty of lean time is given. Baby boomers don't want to lose their superannuation entitlements, but is it fear on younger generations? We'll ask our politicians next. Hoki Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. 15 years from now, superannuation is forecast to cost us $35 billion a year. That would be nearly two-thirds of New Zealand's total welfare spending. Paul Goldsmith, is it irresponsible not to look at super entitlements faster than National is looking at uh, super entitlements, given we have a fast-approaching surge in superannuation costs? Look, I think uh, the universal super scheme that we have in New Zealand is one of the best things that this country has. It gives security for people uh, when they're old. Uh, it is affordable over time. Uh, the critical thing is to have a strong economy and, uh, you know, in 18 years, putting up the age from 67, recognising the fact that people in live longer years. and healthier lives. In 18 years? Yeah. Yeah, and that gives people plenty of time. I'll be retired to want. by then, Paul. Well, you well then you might just have to work an extra couple of years because you'll live a longer, healthier life. And it'll be interested to see uh, th these people. I remember we'll be interested to see Shama Bilyakub every week uh, when John Key was prime minister. He would write an article saying that he had his head in the sand and he should lift up the age of superannuation. Well, he does that about us too. Yeah, well, the prime minister's <laughs> got his same head in the sand, and uh, I want to see those articles. Grant Robertson, is it irresponsible not to look at the cost of super, given the, the state of the global economy? We have to be very aware of, of the cost of investing in. In, in giving people dignity in retirement. That's why we're continuing to make contributions to the New Zealand Super Fund. That's the thing I can do right now as a finance minister. It's the thing Paul could do as well. They're proposing to cut those contributions to the Super Fund, even though that no Super difference. Fund has it's been out... Total red herring. It's fine. Total red herring. I mean, you, could, you, could you could also advocate to raise the age of super or to reduce yeah. super entitlements or to means test super but entitlements. But for me, lots of for me for I mean, you. Paul just started this comment by no, saying... No, no, this no, is, no, no, no let me finish this. But Paul just started his comment by saying the Super Fund's one of the most important things... Not the Super, super Fund. Super superannuation. Is one of the most important things that New Zealand does. Well, in order to support that, you've actually got to fund it. And funding it is, is partly funding? through the super fund and partly That's through the tax system. By cutting off the contributions to the super fund, he actually puts more danger in terms but of... But what about some of those other options that I just put to you? Yeah, and look, they've been considered. They but we believe New Zealanders have a social contract with the government about making sure they have dignity in retirement. We can afford this if we prioritise it and if we don't go around cutting taxes, we have the resources to do this. Is anyone so cutting those, the gold card? Those tax Is anyone so, cutting the gold card? Can I just say that tax they relief don't. on the first of December, we'll give a superannuitant couple an extra thousand dollars in the hand. And that'll make someone a real on the minimum wage eight dollars a week. Uh, is, is anyone cutting the super, uh, the gold card? No, no. Okay. Um, 
Grant You'll Robinson, be able to get that when, too, Jack. When, when will you start opening up the border? Are you waiting for a vaccine or can we do it earlier? Um, we can progressively move to bring more people in. Um, that's what the Trans-Tasman um, Safe Travel Zone's about, being able to build that up, have confidence and work towards We're not taking Australians, though. They're taking us. Yeah, but we're, we're still... The policy work on the overall safe zone carries on and we will, I'm sure, be at a point where we can have uh, a mutual recognition within that as we work towards a vaccine. OK. What if we don't get a vaccine? Oh, we will. There will be a vaccine here. It is a question of timing. This will be the quickest vaccine to market in the history of vaccines. How quick? We're investing huge sums of money sure, in making sitting, sure New Zealanders have access to two years' time still waiting for a vaccine? I don't think that'll be the case. I really OK, don't. so when? What, what, what uh, do your forecasts uh, tell you? No, 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 you've, you've obviously got some information here. What do you, what, uh, I, I, I can oh, see the work. No, I'm not. I can see that, and we're not hoping. And OK, this is give, actually, us, give us some detail, Lynn. No, well, there are very, very sensitive commercial Great. negotiations going on there. <laughs> what we've said is we're putting... Give us a time frame, though. I know you are. I in, know, I know what next, you're doing. I think, in, you... I think in next year, Jack, there will be a vaccine. Next year? I think there will be, yes. A vaccine but to all me, New Zealand... But can I actually finish the answer yeah, sure. I was giving? Because there is a really important point here. One of the reasons we've left that $12 billion on the table is for a resurgence. But mm. the other is because we need to make sure New Zealanders are near the front of the queue for these vaccines. We are right now working across a number of different companies to make sure that we will be. We've got the Global Vaccine mm, Alliance. Good. This is coming quicker than any other one. I can't give you a date. Of course I can But can't. you say next year? I'm confident that we'll Next be able year to for do all that. New Zealanders? I'm I'm confident that it'll be there, and that's why we're making sure that we can get that as quickly as possible. For Paul Goldsmith, when would you open up the border? Oh, well, as soon as we safely can. Uh, and that's the, that's the simple what answer. Is. Well, uh, and you can't say the, you know, the 17th of December or something Are you like as that. confident as Grant Robertson is that we'll have a vaccine Look, I, next I year? hope he's right, and, uh, and I hope we have the best opportunity. But all we can do as a country is give ourselves the best chance, and that's about giving people confidence in the management of the border, and there's been a few You've scares over the last little while. And then have the three and different the, leaders. Well, the things have changed over the last yeah, year. Yeah, but you the, not the number of leaders you've had has changed. And what we've got to do is respond. And we thought we had the disease under control. on the and we thought people were being tested, and they weren't being you tested. Can't and so you can't flip-flop on decisions uh, like this. We've been consistent in our plan with the border. Nationals wanted to open it, close it, move more quickly, move no. more slowly. It's a reflection of the number of leaders they've had, yes. but you need okay. stability on this issue. Yes. Look, we, th we threw open questions to our audience this morning, and so I want to finish uh, this morning with a couple of quick questions from our audience. The first is, uh, would either of your parties make charity-backed businesses pay more tax? Companies such as Sanitarium. Grant Robertson? Yeah, look, the Tax Working Group looked at that. It is very very, very challenging. The way to do it is actually through changes to the Charities Act and that review's underway. Paul? Yeah, well, we definitely need to look at that as an issue. There's no question about that. Uh, so you would? Yeah, we would look at it uh, because uh, ultimately as that section of the uh, business community grows, it starts to have a very hard competitive impact on the businesses that aren't okay, charities. Okay. So over so time, I think that there, there, there has to be some movement there. So you're saying it's an anti-competitive issue rather than... Well, it becomes an issue mm -hmm. uh, if, if big parts of any industry, tourism sure. uh, industry, no, are, are not paying really tax. really clear on that, though. A, a national government would look at taxing sanitarium. We'd, we'd certainly uh, look at that no issue. No new taxes, yes. Paul. Nah, <laughs> it's about ensuring that taxes are properly uh, labelled. And we haven't really had a chance to talk about the stimulatory tax cuts that we're having from no, the 1st like of December. $3,000 into the hand of the... Who gets $3,000? Somebody who's on the average full-time income. Not someone on the median wage, though, eh? No, the average, right. the average wage skews right, it, Paul. Because you we know, back the people that get up early, work hard... You know the median wage is the right number. You think they need some money back in their pockets. But why not give poorer people more money? Because we want to give something back to those people who are working hard full-time... 
stimulus their money. You say this is stimulus. I know, but you yeah, said this about is stimulus, about and it's about also giving people encouragement. It's completely unaffordable, Jack. That's what it is. It's not their fault they lost their job, is it? Well, of course, and the best thing you can do for people who have lost their job is give them the prospect of another one. And that's why you need a strong, and so trickle down robust economics economy. remains the only idea ah. that Paul has. Do you think it's trickle-down, Paul? Nothing trickle-down about it. It's about encouraging investment. That's where you get the jobs from. It's not from Grant Robertson and Phil Twyford so deciding, can you, can you, oh, yes, you, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Can you it's point about us to any economic theory that suggests that if you give a tax cut to richer people, that stimulates the economy more than if you give a tax cut to... short-term stimulus than if you give tax cuts Jack, to people on think, low income? Yeah, can you, you point if, us to any yeah, theory? If you think somebody earning $60,000 in New Zealand is rich, then I'm sorry, I'm your, your, some, your ambitions are out of whack. Uh, no, well, that's what theory? we're focused You, you want to be finance minister? Give me the theory well, here. I'm going to tell us. you that if you're going to get $3,000 back into the hands it's of somebody not. on the average income, that'll make a real difference Paul, to their family. Paul, you're giving me 60 bucks a week. Yeah. I'm going to well, put that in the back pocket. I'm glad. I'm glad. But, 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 but glad. can you point me to any theory? I'm just, I'm interested here. I mean, you're a learned man. You're a learned man. You're a considered man. It's very clear evidence that putting money back into the hands of people who earn it and encouraging them by that uh, completely irresponsible. It gets okay. things going. It's not irresponsible. It really is. Back to people is irresponsible. No, what I think, I think, what I think is irresponsible is okay. promising things you can't deliver. All right, right, we right. Can well, deliver. well, let's, let's not talk go down about that. Okay, okay, okay. No, we're going to wrap <laughs> things there. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Good luck for the last couple of weeks. Thanks. The campaign before polling day. Nationals, Paul Goldsmith, Labor's Grant Robertson. In a few minutes on Q&A, how do the economic plans shape up? We're back with our panel after the break. Welcome back to Q&A. Let's bring in our panel. Fran O'Sullivan, NZME's Head of Business and Economist Shamabil Yakub. Kia ora kōrua. Fran, I will begin with you. One of uh, those two men, Paul Goldsmith and Grant Robertson, will be the next Finance Minister. Who do you think had the stronger pitch? Well, I think they were sort of a bit like big brother, little brother. There was actually quite a lot of commonality, though clearly they're not going to admit it. Um, different prescriptions. I feel, um, you know, there's some strength to Grant Robertson with the incumbency. Uh, but, however, I'm still looking for more detail. We're in an environment where next week Australia's going to have a mini-budget. They're having significant investment in co-investment into manufacturing, looking at about a whole range of things that get their economy moving. So I think the election is enormous distraction. I think Paul Goldsmith comes from a different angle, which is, you know, it's more up to the private sector to actually row its own boat, and the government, um, the incumbents, you know, more from a top-down. So there's a difference there, but I would say on balance, the momentum still stays with Grant Robertson. Shamabil, who do you think had the stronger pitch? Um, I'd say Labour had the stronger pitch because National's pitching an austerity budget, which I think is crazy in our current environment when we're facing a recession. Um, but at the same time, when you think about the longer-term stuff, um, what we're looking at is, I think, a choice between a dinosaur budget and an ostrich budget because Grant is not prepared to talk about the long-term issues mm. that we're still grappling with. Fran, we always hear from politicians that you know, about how they create jobs, but we know the private sector plays a massive role in, in creating jobs with the support of good policy. What do businesses in New Zealand need at the moment? Well, I think business, um, and that's getting beyond the lobbies, because at the moment there is kind of a, with the current government, a triumvirate working. You have the government, you have the CTU, and you have um, Business New Zealand, and decisions made there. But business wants a more direct voice at the table. They really want to be listened to. They want to have their ideas uh, given some weight and get away from a sense that the government uh, knows best and knows all. So I think they are looking for that, um, you know, bit like what we're seeing in Australia where you know, people have been punting up ideas and this is senior business and they are actually being listened to. Uh, at the moment we've had 
Um, it's not to disparage Rob Fife, he's done a good job as a business liaison, but he can't speak for all you know, major businesses. And you've got, you know, through uh, the Mood of the Boardroom survey this week, we had a, a range of people in this frame saying that um, you know, they do need to be It's there. interesting to look at the, the results of the Mood of the Boardroom mm. survey. Were you surprised that Grant Robertson enjoys as much support from the business community as he does? No, I wasn't actually. I mean, it's, it's been built over the time of his incumbency as Labor's opposition finance spokesman through to, you know, he's had six years with this audience, they've got to know him. However, it's interesting, they rate him well, but they don't necessarily rate Labor's uh, policies um, as well when it comes to tax, as, as opposed to the other side, national. Shamabil, what do you think the private sector <coughs> needs? Well, I think there is always the perennial issue that the private sector will talk about in terms of regulation and stuff. But right now, what's really important is government should play the role of providing stimulus to the economy. Because we've got the central bank essentially out of the frame because interest rates are practically zero, the only game left in town is the government to spend money to stimulate the economy. If the government exits that role and tax cuts that are broad-based are not going to cut it. And I'm glad you pushed Paul Goldsmith on that because having a broad-based, even temporary tax cut is a bad idea. We can't afford it. It should be targeted towards lower-income households if we want because all the evidence shows that uh, richer folk will save it. But really what we've got to do is try and push money into investment. Um, that is something that I absolutely agree with, with on Paul is we've got to try and get money into businesses to invest. Right now my big concern is is banks are lending money, but they're lending money to buy and sell existing houses, not towards businesses. Mm. Let's talk about those three sacred cows um, that, that my sense is neither major party wants to touch at the moment. Taxation, housing and superannuation. Fran, do you think that either party is doing enough to um, ward off what might, what might be some very difficult times in the coming years? Well, at the moment they're concentrating on re-election and the problem will be in, in another three years they'll be concentrating the same. So it really what there needs to be is, is a real reckoning and a national conversation that actually leads to action. Uh, Treasury has been saying for many years in terms of its long-term fiscal planning that there is this sort of huge sort of wall that has to be accommodated mm. later on, that it's intergenerational intergenerationally <laughs> unfair, sorry guys, uh, even, even on, um, on pre-COVID tracks in that um, you know, there are substantial costs and it's not just super, it's health costs, it's a range of things with an ageing population. So they do need to tackle that, they need to talk mm. about that, they need to look at, and it's a point Alan Bollard makes, you need to look at where the revenue is coming from. So that's capital gains taxes, etc. Uh, on housing, you've got to build supply. Build supply, like in Christchurch, drops the prices. Mm. It's what's happened in Australia. Uh, at the moment, the pressure is on, people coming back from overseas, so Auckland's prices are going up. Uh, you need to actually change that cycle. So that requires significant investment and incentivisation. And on super, we've got to tackle it. Um, you know, I mean, this is ludicrous to be paying super to people who are able-bodied at 65 quite likely because of COVID, people are going to have to work a lot longer anyway mm. to sustain their livelihoods. This is the nature of the little rabbit hole I went down with Grant Robertson over the definition of a mandate. Shamabil, do you get any sense that either of the major parties is prepared to do something that is politically unpopular in the short term, <laughs> but necessary from a fiscal perspective in the long term? Look, we're not seeing the courage in the big stuff. And I'm not surprised because we do politics by polling. And right now we know that this is the last election where boomers will still be the largest block of voters. From here on in, we're going to have other generations becoming the bigger blocks. So the t generational tide is shifting. So in future years, we're going to see more 
uh, urgency to tackle some of those issues, but it's very hard to change it because, as you've seen, farmers and old folk are very, very strong political voices. Yeah, but, but the point is, um, the boomers will all be getting um, the um, uh, benefits, oh, exactly. so they're not going to be chopped. But they'll the, still the, be complaining. Well, why? Because they're not, they're not at risk. The people who are at risk are the younger ones coming through. Mm. And it's, they, they are the ones, yourselves and others, who are going to be pushed out into later years. Mm. So you've got to vote for that. You've got to see it as responsible. I think the boomers will have, you know, packed their bags long ago. Uh, they pocketed this one. That's true. The one subject we didn't have time to get to this morning, and I, and I wish we did, was immigration. What role do you think immigration is going to play in our economic uh, recovery? Stimulate the economy. What does that mean in terms of numbers? Are we going, well, again, going back to means, the days of 70,000 net migration a year? Well, we've got net migration anyway, off, uh, coming off the back of COVID, with people we coming back actually. and no one going. Well, mm. actually, there's very little, because we, there's so many people still leaving mm. on short-term visas that are leaving, that at least for the next six to nine months, we're going to see very little net migration. So but once the borders are open... Once the borders are open, we've got to have this conversation about our population policy. And, and I feel like I've been talking about this for years. We, we are not having a grown-up conversation about what size New Zealand wants to be and what is the role of immigration in that. So no party has been um, particularly forthcoming in having the conversation because I think it's uncomfortable. Do we want to be a country of 10 million or 5 million? Mm. And what might that look like? Yeah. Um, OK, I want to um, turn to the horse race a little bit. Of course, uh, the Series Ford office announced this week it would be charging two people in relation to the New Zealand First Foundation. Here's New Zealand First Party leader Winston Peters responding. My team has gone through months and months and months of jackboot behaviour, the SFO walking into somebody's workplace, grabbing their computer and grabbing their phone and preparing to go all the way to the election without saying that we were clear. This is appalling. When you say you're clear, the New Zealand First Foundation isn't clear. Yeah, but, it's but, facing charges. But, but, no, OK, but the, you've got a matter of you I can't discuss because it's subdued to and the court's just told you and me that we can't discuss it. That's Winston Peters on Breakfast earlier this week. Do you think this is going to change the state of the race for New Zealand First, Fran? I think people have made their minds up in terms of New Zealand First and uh, Winston Peters and his people. I don't think um, Winston Peters can disengage from New Zealand uh, First Foundation as he's attempted to do there, though he did get the clarification he wanted in that no one who is a minister or, or you know, existing party member is tied up in these charges. And he also has another point which is worthwhile, like what is the situation, particularly of Labour's probe mm. from the 2017 election. I think the timing uh, was off base from the SFO, but you know, they, they have to... What are they supposed to do? Like, can they, they can they just hold off charging? Well, it's a very difficult thing. Um, no, I'm not. No, no, I'm no. not saying that. But I think it could have been done earlier, and I think they could have hurried up and got the answer out with Labor as yeah. well. We know the situation with National. We know that um, you know a former whip. I mean, they've tried to mm. disengage, but it was one of their former uh, key players, Jamie Lee Ross, has been charged along with uh, some Chinese New Zealanders. Uh, we know Labor has been investigated, but we don't know for mm. what. Exactly, because it's been quite silent on that. And we know in this case, New Zealand First Foundation, but not the ministers or Winston Peters himself, yeah. have been charged. I think needs all the info on the table. Shamabil, what do you think? I think I'm quite a, bit, quite a bit disgusted when I think about the corruption that actually goes on in a political parties, even if it's low level. It's something that seems to happen everywhere. So the risk of foreign influence, the risk mm. of interference, the risk of corruption is something we need to be really mindful of. Um, we trust our politicians in New Zealand, even though we may not like them all the time. Um, you know, I think we rank them just below used car salesmen, right? But I think it's really important our political institutions are as clear as possible, and the SFO is doing its job. That's what we mm. wanted to do. All right. Alleged corruption, of course. Two weeks out then. Uh, this is the last time, I think, 
think the three of us will be speaking before the election? Are either of you prepared to make a pick for what, might, what we might expect the next government to look like? Um, I think it's going to be Labour with a supply and confidence agreement with Greens. Fran? Yeah, I would say the same, but however, national closing the gap. All right. Thank you so much for your time and insights. We really appreciate it. That is uh, Fran O'Sullivan and Shamavil Yakub. Komotu, that's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching and mihiki a koutou. We are koutou karere. Thank you for your contributions. Join us next week for our final leader interviews before polling day. Until then, thanks to the Q&A team. Hey te ra wiki. We will see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.